Jason Freed, welcome to the Indie Hackers Podcast. Thank you for having me on. You probably don't need an introduction for most of the people who listen to this podcast, but regardless, you are the founder of Basecamp, formerly known as 37signals. You have over 100,000 paying customers. Is that right? That is correct. Tens of millions of dollars in profit every year. Basecamp was also the birthplace of Ruby on Rails, one of the most popular programming frameworks of all time. You've been working on the company for 20 years now, and you're part of what I would call the original class of self-funded software businesses on the web. And I would also wager that you've done more than pretty much anyone to inspire people to follow down the same path. At the very least, indie hackers would not exist and not for you guys and your writing and your speaking over the years. And that's probably true of many hundreds of thousands of other businesses too. So I'm sure you hear this all the time, Jason, but thank you. Well, my pleasure. I'm just trying to do the best we can. It's pretty amazing that you can, you can just get on the internet and share your thoughts and thousands of people who you've never heard of and who will never meet will literally make life-changing decisions based on something that you wrote last Wednesday while you're eating a sandwich or something. And it's most a of the time, heavy, but yeah, hopefully. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Uh, and most of the time you won't even know they did that, right? Unless they write you and tell you about it. But it's been a role that you've played for the last 15 years. So I'm curious, what are some of the things that you've learned in that time about how to be effective, how to be persuasive when you're sharing your ideas with so many people? Not to worry about being persuasive. Basically, I've never really tried to change anybody's mind. I should say maybe I used to try to do that. Maybe a better way to say it is I used to try to do that and I don't anymore. Back when we launched Basecamp in 2004, the concerns were things like, how do I know you're not looking at my data? And how do I know that like, I can trust software as a service and that kind of stuff, which of course, people don't think about quite as much today. But back then they thought about that. And I remember trying to convince people that, you know, well, it's it's safe and this and, and like at some point you just can't convince anybody and I, I just stopped trying. Instead, I just communicate, try to communicate clearly, and try to tell the truth as I see it, and let the chips fall where they may. If you try too hard to change people's minds, you're just going to end up frustrated. So that's the best advice I have. If you want to be persuasive, is just not to try. You have a lot of strong, controversial opinions as well. How important is it that? the thoughts that you share online be unique or controversial? I don't aim to be controversial. I just call it as I see it. And sometimes that is controversial. I think what's important though, is that you have a point of view. And I think when you have a point of view, you automatically become controversial to people who don't share that point of view. When you don't have a point of view at all, and you're just very muddled and whatever, then you you can't I don't think really move anybody one way or the other. And I don't, again, I don't mean change their mind. I just mean like get them engaged. For me, what's important is to say something that I think uh, that, that has a clear point of view and that I believe. I, I don't write things to, to get reactions. I, I write things to share something if I believe it. If some people disagree, that's great. And if people agree, that's great. I don't, I don't really uh, write for any other effect other than to share an idea. One of the the ideas that you shared a lot back in the 2000s was that people should consider bootstrapping their businesses. They should consider charging customers money instead of raising money from investors. And back then, I was in college. I wanted to start something. And the only information I could find said that what you needed to do was go to Silicon Valley and raise money. Try to get into Y Combinator, try to pitch Sequoia, and hopefully investors will invest. And then you can start something online. And then I found you guys, you and your co-founder, DHH, and I got hooked on your message, which was very different than what everybody else was saying at the time. In fact, I went to Mountain View to the startup school event that Y Combinator put on, 
And they brought out this whole parade of investors and founders to talk to us. And then you came on. I think you were the last speaker. And you basically said, yeah, don't listen to any of these people. Uh, you don't need to raise money. You don't need to move to California. You can just charge your customers for what you're building. And for whatever reason, that was a pretty radical thing to say in 2007. Why do you think so few people were putting out that message and agreeing with what you said at that time? Well, I was never invited back to, to, uh, <laughs> to speak at Y Combinator. I think it's unfortunately still a radical message in the software industry. The thing is, it's not a radical message anywhere else in the world. I mean, pretty much every single business in the world, like 99 point whatever percent, like they just have to figure out how to go on their own and figure it out. I mean, the dry cleaner on the corner, the pizza shop on the corner, the little coffee shop, like most businesses uh, that exist just have to figure it out. And so it's funny how in our industry, we're seen as radical, but really we're extremely mainstream. What's radical to me is the alternative, which is going and raising a bunch of money and aiming as high as you possibly can. And the only thing that's going to be a success is, is eternal rapid growth to become a billion dollar business. Like that's, that seems extra, exceptionally radical. The odds are hugely against you, you know, in our point of, or from our point of view, building a sustainable business is a lot more reasonable. Uh, the odds are more in your favor, still against you. Of course, starting a business is always challenging, but you have a much better shot at staying within your means and, and growing slowly and, and reaching profitability than you do becoming a billion dollar business or knowing how to spend that $30 million that you raised. I, I just, I don't understand that. I mean, I, I guess I understand it, but I, I don't agree with that way of doing it. So I know back in 2007, it was, I, I guess you could say more radical since now there's certainly more people doing it. There's other great examples of companies that have done this like MailChimp and a, a number of others. And now there's a new crop of sort of investors that are not out to, you know, uh, help you raise millions, but maybe a hundred thousand or 150,000 just to kind of get going. And they'll take a small portion of your business and then maybe you can buy them out. Like I'm, I feel like that's a good pattern, a good, good path and good progress. So I'm not against taking any money ever. Uh, although I think it should be something you do later and not, not too early on. I think that's when people can get into a lot of trouble. One of the reasons not to raise money is that you get to keep your independence. If you don't have a board, if you don't have anybody to answer to, then it's your company. Uh, you own it and you're free to do whatever the hell you want. What are some of the ways that you've taken advantage of your freedom at Basecamp? Yeah, you know, independence is probably the most valuable thing that we have because with independence typically comes flexibility. And certainly with profitability comes flexibility. There's all sorts of things we've done that probably people would tell us not to do. It makes very little sense, business sense in, in a case, for us to write books and share all the information that we do and spend all that time on writing and sharing. Like technically, it's hard to justify. Like if you were really someone looking at the numbers, it'd be very hard to justify. But we do it because we can and we want to. Building seven or eight products over the course of our careers and then deciding to kind of go all in on just one of them and change the name of the company five years ago to Basecamp and focus on Basecamp and build a brand new version of Basecamp from scratch every few years. Like that on paper doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. Uh, to us, it makes plenty of sense. Staying as small as we can in terms of the number of people who work here to most companies wouldn't make a lot of sense because there's all sorts of things we want to do. We have a million ideas. We can only do two of them, let's say, but that's true at, no matter what size you're at. So but still, people think that more people means you can do more things. And certainly, maybe you can, but you certainly tend to do them slower and all sorts of other problems creep up. So there's a lot of things that we've done, I think, that wouldn't make sense on paper. And had we had a board, we'd have to really justify ourselves. And I just don't have any interest in justifying myself. I just want to do 
the best work I can with the best people we can find, uh, enjoy ourselves and make our own decisions and, and, you know, do things on behalf of our customers and ourselves. And that's it. To me, that's just more valuable than anything. I really have come to appreciate that flexibility and independence. And I, I wish it on more people because it's a really special thing. And the moment you take outside money from, from an investor who expects a return in a short period of time, you've, you've given those things up. And I think a lot of people don't really recognize that they've given those things up until much later on in the process, and then they regret it. So I, I would encourage people to, uh, to stick to their guns and try and do it themselves first before they, they would ever seek outside funding at a certain level. I mean, of course, like to borrow some money from your friends or your family or yourself or even the bank, you know, a little bit like, of course, like some people you need to get going sometimes, but I'm talking about like investing with strings attached. I think you want to be very careful about that. Yeah. In a lot of ways, having a company is almost like running your own little country. It's like your own little fiefdom and you're the dictator as long as you, you aren't accountable to other people. And it, you don't necessarily have to be a bad dictator. In fact, hopefully you're a great benevolent dictator and you create this great world for yourself and your employees and your customers to sort of exist in. And it's one of my favorite ideas that you guys sort of export, this idea that your company is a product and you should iterate on it, you should work on it, you should make it into something that you actually enjoy. That's like a net good for yourself and for the world. Where did you get that idea from? And how did you first sort of realize that a company doesn't have to be the sort of cookie cutter thing that does everything that everybody else is doing? Yeah, I think we looked back on our behavior and realize that at some point that, you know what, we've changed the way we've worked a bunch of times. We've changed our approach to work, our approach to hiring, all these things. And really at the end of the day, in order to make something, you have to use your company. Like you use the company to make the other things that you you make. And therefore the company is a product and probably your most important product. You know, we've been in business for 20 years and we'd love to stay in business for another 20 if you want to be around for a long time, you have to build sustainable practices. And as you grow, you know, we have 54 people now. So we're the biggest we've ever been, but we're still relatively small, all things considered. But we're a lot different than we were when we were 30 and when we were 20, when we were eight. You have to change your processes and your 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 ideas as you go, but they don't have to be, they don't have to become more rigid. I think that's what typically happens in a lot of organizations as they grow they form a lot of organizational scar tissue and they, and they tighten up. And so we've tried to continue to iterate rather than scar. Scarring would be, you know, like, this is the way we do it and that's that. Like, it's a permanent fixture now. This, versus like, we've, we've changed the way we've worked and approached a whole bunch of things over the years and continue to do so. I think that's the healthy way to do it. And I think that if you realize that your company's a product, that you can improve the product, like you improve your other products, that it means that, you know, your company can get better. And we want our company to get better as we age as well. So I think it's a, it's a mindset. And once you just start to explain it to people, people start to realize, oh, that does make sense. But I don't think a lot of people thought about it that way. They think of a company as sort of a static. It grows and it, it shifts size, but it doesn't really change that much. But I think it really probably should uh, change pretty frequently, just probably just like a product should change frequently enough if you have new ideas and, and you want to improve it further. Companies have bugs. There's all sorts of things about companies that don't work. The way they work, the way they communicate, the way they sanction time and, and the way they divide time and the tools they use and all these things. This is all important stuff and you need to be really thinking about what it's doing to the organization, what it's doing to the company and not just you know buy something and start using it. Like, What is it doing? What impact is it having? Is it hurting? Is it helping? Just because it's the latest and greatest doesn't mean it's any better for us. It could be worse. Lots of things are worse. Like open floor plans were the latest and greatest thing couple decades ago and they've made office life worse for a lot of people 
Um, so it's important f- to revisit these decisions that you've made and iterate and tweak them and adjust them and not go, well, that's just the way it is. If the way it is, it might have been the way it was, but it doesn't have to be the way it has to be. So I think that's that's sort of our approach to these sorts of things. I don't know what it, what it is about being a human and just loving to copy other people, but it's just like it's a natural thing to feel comfortable doing something that everybody else is doing and to feel well, a easier. little bit afraid. Yeah, it's it easier. Not only is it easier, but it's um, it's safer in a way because you're like, well, everyone else is doing it, so I'm not going to be out and you know put my neck out and doing something different. Like, why is there, why, why am I right and everyone else is wrong? That sort of thing. The thing is, is that everything is contextual because X Y Z works over here. It means nothing about whether or not it's going to work for you. Like very little. I shouldn't say nothing, but very little it has very little impact on whether or not it's going to work for you, just because it works for them. Their organization is different. You see this all the time when it comes to like small companies following big companies. I think this is one of the big mistakes that startups make is that they they look to companies like ooh Apple and you know Tesla and you know Air, Airbnb and these kind of companies, which are enormous companies. And have nothing at all to do with the scale you're at when you're six people. Zero. Absolutely zero. The way they work, the way they function, the way they make decisions, completely irrelevant to a six-person company. Yet those six people or those companies with six people, they tend to look at these bigger leaders and go, we want to be like them. Well, they weren't like you when they were your size. You're probably better off being more like them when they were your size than they are now. So I think it's important for people to look around if they're going to take some lessons from others, from, from people who are a lot closer to them. So for example, I'll often say that I'm the, like the worst person to talk to about starting a business. I've started a successful business, but I started 20 years ago. What the hell do I know about starting a business today? I know very little. You're much better off talking to someone who started a business three weeks ago or three months ago than talking to me or talking to anyone who's been successful over the years. That Things are different. Context is different. So talk to people who are doing the thing you want to do right now. Uh, they're going to be the best source of information for you and the most realistic source of information for you. So I'd say like look, look for people your own size, look for people your own age, look for companies your own age, that sort of thing, and, and learn from sort of what's going on around you. It's not that you can't pay attention to other people. Like I love Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger who are in their 80s and 90s. Like I pay attention to their fundamental wisdom and whatnot. But, you know, I, I just think there's probably more to be learned from people who are closer to your own context. Yeah, you're, you're spot on with early stage founders spending way too much time trying to copy these companies that have nothing to do with them. They're way too big. And the analogy I always give is you wouldn't go to the gym and, and just try to bench press 500 pounds because that's what the biggest person there is bench pressing. You just get squashed. Uh, yep. But for some reason, as a, as a founder, it's there's just something missing that it doesn't make it that obvious that you can't just copy what the bigger people are doing. I talked to Natalie Nagel. She runs a company called Wildbit. I'm sure you've heard of it. They've been around for a similar amount of time as you guys, running a bootstrapped and profitable business with multiple products. And the way that she describes her company is, is almost like a, a playground. And so I asked her a question, and she, and she gave me an interesting answer. I want to ask you the same question. Let's say you could try something unconventional at Basecamp, and you didn't have to worry that it wasn't going to work. It was definitely going to be an experiment that panned out. What would you change about how you run your company? I'd probably just uh, take a year off. Actually, I don't. I think like the way we run our company day to day is 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 good. I mean, because we we iterate, so we're not in a place where the where we're unhappy. But I, I'd be very curious just to see what would happen if I took a year off, for example, and like what good things would happen specifically, what patterns would emerge, what changes would be made, 
that sort of thing I think would be really interesting to do. And I've, I've contemplated that before, but never had the courage to do it. But I think that that could be interesting. We're also doing something we said we would never do. So right now we're building a new product, an entirely different product, not Basecamp. Like we're still building Basecamp, but then we're going to build another product, which is something we used to do a long time ago. And then we stopped doing, we said, we're going to go all in and focus on Basecamp, but now we're going to do something else too. And that was a decision we made earlier this year and actually probably late last year. Anyway, um, so we're doing that. That would that probably would have been something two years ago. I would have said, I would have liked, maybe we should do another product. And now we are. So we do do some of these things that uh, are kind of big bets and strange decisions and, and contradictory, basically, uh, and conflicting with another thing we may have said a number of years ago. But I'm a big fan of changing my mind. And uh, I think you should be changing your mind all the time. So this is one of those times. Um, so, but anyway, I think to answer your initial question, taking a year off would be, would be a cool experiment. I'd like to try that sometime. Let's go down this path that you, you've let us down. You built a ton of products, not just Basecamp. You built Hi-Rise, a CRM tool. You built a chat tool. I believe it was called Campfire. You built yep. a to-do list app called Todalist. Uh, you built Backpack, Writeboard, and probably some others that I'm forgetting. I just talked to another indie hacker on the podcast. He bootstrapped his product to about four or $5,000 a month in revenue and then got the itch and just launched a totally new product a couple months ago. Now that's at like $300 in recurring revenue. So it's something that I see people at all stages doing, building lots of products. What's your mindset here? How do you make the decision to not just build one thing and, and branch out to do different things? This kind of snuck up on us. First off, we had an idea that we wanted to explore. But more than that, we realized that, or we think, I shouldn't say we realized, we think, because we don't know if it's a good idea or not, that it's a good idea to what we're calling TikTok, basically go back and forth between two things. Every time we built a brand new version of Basecamp, we did it after we explored something else. So for example, Basecamp 3, which is the current version, um, before that, we built a product called Know Your Company, which is now called Know Your Team. And we spun that off and someone else runs that now. But a lot of the ideas for Basecamp 3, visual ideas and some of the structural ideas came from us exploring another product, making another product, and then returning back to Basecamp to make a new version of Basecamp. Now that Basecamp 3 has been out for, I mean, it's been changing all the time, but been out collectively for almost four years and we're gearing up to make the next version of Basecamp, we think it would, it's a good idea to explore something else first so we can get some new ideas. And also to have something to go back and forth on. Two different kinds of products with different approaches and different interfaces and different concepts and bring new ideas to each one of them through other explorations that you can't get to. We found that you can't get to by exploring the same thing. So the fact that we had a new idea and that we wanted to begin working on a new version of Basecamp soon and the fact that we feel like there's a point in a product's life cycle where like, for example, we have 54 people in the company, and we're, we're pointing the, all of our efforts right now into making marginal improvements in, in an existing product that's really, really good. Basecamp 3 is the best version we've ever made. It's really damn good. It can replace five other products. You don't need to use Slack. You don't need to use Trello. You don't need to use Asana. You don't need to use Jira. You don't need to use email. You don't need to use Google Docs. Like, it's one thing that you can use and replace all these things. It's really damn good. But like I said, it's about four years in. Um, and while we've been making improvements along the way, there comes a point where the improvement, improvements you're making are ultimately marginal at the end. And to focus all of our company's energy into making those kind of improvements versus if you start something new, um, you can put all your energy into something going, taking it from zero somewhere 
versus taking something from, let's say, 98 to 100, um, it just seems like a better allocation of resources, plus all the benefits you get from exploring something new with fresh eyes and then being able to bring those lessons back into the other products. So those are kind of some of the reasons, aside from the fact that we just want to make something because we use this one thing every single day and we just don't like the way it works. We haven't found anything else that we like. So typically when we get to that point, we decide to make our own version of whatever that thing is and do it our own way and, and hopefully other people like it. So that's uh, that's the plan. This other thing will be out, and I'm being extremely vague, but it'll be out either later this year or early next year. It'll be out later this year for some people and then early next year for everybody's consumption. Is there a point where it's too early to start splitting your focus onto a second product? If you haven't yes. gotten to the point of like diminishing returns and all the features you're building, is it foolish to, to split your focus? I do think so, yes. And I think this is where a lot of founders go wrong early is that, so they have this itch to make, to create, which is good. That's why they are who they are. But making something is actually the easy part. Um, the hard part is maintaining something and improving something over time. Like anyone can go start a business tomorrow. You just like get a domain name. You, you don't even need one of those either, but you just put up a website or whatever. And you're essentially in business, but like, are you going to be in business a year from now or two years from now or three years from now? A lot of people make products and they think that's it. Like, no, no, it's not it. That's the easy part. Making something is easy. Then releasing it to the public and, and fielding requests and handling all that stuff and doing customer service and improving the product over time and dealing with downtime, like all that stuff's challenging. And if you take your eye off that ball too early and start to jump on something else, I think it's a pretty good chance that that first thing is not going to, to survive. It's kind of like a, a baby, you know, you just need to take care of that baby for a while. I know some people have babies in rapid succession, but like for the most part, the first nine months, first year, like you've got to pay all your attention to that human baby human, <laughs> that living thing in order for it to survive. And I think that um, the thing is true for products, but I think the product products you need to pay more attention to uh, over the, like it's, I'd give it a couple years before you really start to jump into something else. So especially if your team's very small, because then you're very diluted and it's very, very difficult, I think, to maintain a high level of quality on two things at once when you're very, very small, especially when the public's going to be pulling you in different directions and all sorts of issues are going to pop up and you don't have the space and the time to really dedicate to anything. Instead, you're sort of siphoning off time from this to that. I think that's probably not a great move. So anyway, that's my general point of view on it. it there's, of course, exceptions and, and whatnot. And maybe that second thing is actually the, the first thing. Maybe the second thing should have been the first thing. So there's certainly an opportunity for that second thing you make to be better than the first. And maybe the first thing you shouldn't have spent any time on. So you know, sometimes you have to get through the first mistake before you hit the second one. So it's not that the second thing is going to be bad at all. It's just a matter of focus. And I think it's important to nurture focus and self-discipline here, especially with, with making sure that whatever you put out in the world can get better over time and you can support it uh, and you get used to supporting things uh, versus just letting them sort of flounder. And, and um, it's very easy for, for things to fall apart if you don't pay attention to them. That's not the case necessarily with mature products, but it's the case with new products. I think it's hard just to focus because, for example, with indie hackers, my list of things that I might want to someday work on, it's bigger every month. It's never a list that gets smaller and it would be very easy. always be just, true. Yeah, I don't expect it to ever stop being true. It's not like I'm going to run out of ideas. It's not like people are going to stop suggesting, oh, why don't you do this, do this or do that? Uh, and I'll probably never do 99% of those things. I think I'm fine with it, but it's really easy to, to be. be like a dog chasing a car. Yeah, you have to be fine with it. You, there's no other option. 
you know, yeah. if you're someone who makes to make things, like you're always going to want to make new things. You're always going to see problems in the world. You're always going to want to fix them or whatever, or, or put your, your version of it out there, but simply can't do everything you want. And that never ends. Every company, it's funny because people just think like, all you got to do is hire more people and you can do more things. And I mentioned this earlier on the show, that you, you can do more things, but you'll never ever do more, like everything you want to do. Um, and that's good because most of the things you probably want to do aren't worth doing or they're worth doing for five minutes. Then you get into it and you're like, eh, I shouldn't have started this. This isn't really like, I thought I knew this problem, but I really don't. Or I thought I had this idea, but once it starts to take shape, it's like, eh, this is not really what I thought it was going to be. That's healthy and, and a good thing. So anyway, I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't hit yourself over the head with, with that. I would just go, you know, it, 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 it's a good thing to, to practice focus. And it's also a good thing to, to be selective about the things you choose to put your energy into. You have very limited, limited energy and limited focus and limited attention. And, uh, those, the things you choose to spend that time on, uh, and the energy on should really earn it and, and be worthy of it. Not everything is. It's also, I think more fun to focus on something that's, that's a little bit smaller and really be able to do a good job. I was thinking about this yesterday when I was prepping questions for this podcast. And there've been times in the past where I've sat down to come up with some questions and I've got like a ton of code that I really want to write. And I'm like, ah, oh, I don't have time to do both of these. And I sort of rush through the questions and then it's not fun to do the questions. And I just feel the whole time like I should be coding instead. Whereas if I just give myself time to really just give something the time that it needs and do a good job, it's actually a really fun thing to do. And so I think it's the same with like all the different features and, and opportunities you can chase with your product. If you just sort of pare down your focus and limit sort of what you're focused on, uh, you might find yourself enjoying it a lot more, at least in my experience. And I think you can reach a different depth, which is, in my opinion, the exciting part. I think if you balance between too many things, you're just kind of scratching the surface. And, and that's cool. That's fine. Now, some problems are just surface level deep, but some things are really interesting. And uh, if you give yourself complete focus, uh, or give those things complete focus, and, and you give yourself dedicated time, you can go really deep on a problem area and really do something new and interesting. In Basecamp 3, there's a feature called Hill Charts. And Hill Charts is a brand new innovation, a totally new invention that we came up with, which is that you know a lot of people look at projects and try to track them linearly. Like they're 42% complete or 68% complete. And all these tools have like bar charts and pie graphs and stuff about like how much is left. And it's like, but that's not right. Projects aren't that way. There is no such thing as a project that's 68% complete. It doesn't exist in the world. That's, that's a lie. And if, if there's like eight of 10 to-dos done, it doesn't mean there's 20% left. It could be 90% left. There just happens to be two things left. But are those things knowns? Are they unknowns? Are they hard? Are they easy? I mean, projects don't work on a linear scale. So we invented this thing called Hill Charts, which is all about separating things visually between the knowns and the unknowns, and then moving things over a hill, actually like a physical hill. I mean, it's not physical, but it's, 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 it's a line that's a hill. And the point is, is that there are certain parts of a project that feel uphill and there's certain parts of a project that feel downhill. Uphill things are things you don't know. Like you don't know where the top is. You're still exploring. You're trying to figure it out. But there's a point where you get to the top and you're like, okay, we finally got this figured out now, this scope of work, this idea, whatever it is. And now it's downhill from here. Like that's what people say. It's like downhill from here, which means like it's all now about the execution. We've, we've, we've figured out the problem. And when you plot things on a hill versus a line, 
all sorts of new ideas come into focus and sorts of new, all sorts of new questions are, are asked. And projects run way, way better. And the only reason we were able to come up with this is because we spent a lot of time thinking about this and going deep on this problem and finding ourselves consistently frustrated with percentages of projects being done. There's no such thing. So point is, is that we didn't get to this idea until three versions in and 12 versions, sorry, 15 years later after starting Basecamp. Well, 14 years. We introduced Hill Charts last year in Basecamp 3. That's 14 years in on the Basecamp product that we finally figured this out. And I think it's one of the most important things we've done. And it just took a long time to get there. We had to go through a bunch of other things to get there. And we never would have gotten there had we just kind of just hit the surface. Because you hit the surface and you do what everyone else does. And there's like percentages and, 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 and line colors. It's like green and red and how much is done. And it's like a progress indicator line. Like that just is a fucking lie. Yet it's everywhere. And uh, we couldn't deal with it anymore. So we came up with the old thing. But, but anyway, point is, is like, it took us a long time to get there because we had to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and see the problem from different dimensions and different directions and different sides to finally come up with the idea. And the idea actually came from us working on a product or project, sorry, for Basecamp, where we just felt like we kept saying, like, we just couldn't get this over the hill. We just couldn't get this is before we had the hill charts and before we had the name, before we had the idea. But we just kept feeling like we just kept pushing this thing uphill and we couldn't get over the hill. And then other things felt easy. It's like a downhill. It's like sledding downhill. And it was like, there's something here. There's an idea here. And we, we spent like a year thinking about that idea and exploring it until we finally came up with the right implementation of it. So anyway, those to me are some of the most satisfying parts of product development is being stumped. And finally working your way through a problem and then seeing something that's very clear and straightforward once you get through all the murkiness. But you need to really dive deep, I think, to get there. Yeah, takes takes time. You guys have said <laughs> that uh, the biggest market is the simplest and that there are a lot more people who just want the simple thing without the bells and whistles, even if a handful of your customers are constantly asking you to build this feature or that feature I think that's a pretty compelling idea, especially to an indie hacker who's working a full-time job or something, building their projects on the side, because they don't have a ton of time to put in all these bells and whistles. But on the flip side, the problem is that there's so many people building simple products, especially today. And I think you guys have probably experienced this a little bit. Uh, for example, with Tadalist, which was a very simple to-do list app that you guys built back in 2005, there wasn't a lot of competition. But now there are thousands and thousands of simple to-do list applications. If you're a founder and you want to start something today and you want to keep it simple, how do you stand out? How do you give customers a reason to use your simple solution over all the other simple solutions? Well, I think one way to think about it is that there's a lot of customers out there. If you think you have to dominate the industry, then that's going to be pretty hard. But if you feel like you can make something great for 10,000 people who want to pay you X amount of dollars per month, maybe you can have a nice little business there, even 5,000 people. Uh, can you find 5,000 people who like the thing that you've done? Like, that's kind of the way I would start to think about this. Also, like there's always novel and interesting variations on, on themes. So I think one thing is to be careful not to just make something different and new because it's different and new, but not really useful. But, you know, at the end of the day, like if you're entering an extremely crowded and competitive area, like you should be aware of that and recognize the situation and go, maybe this isn't, I mean, and if you want to be, it depends what you want. Like if you want to build this big, huge business or whatever, uh, that's probably not the place to be. If you want to do something for a specific industry, for example, um, for example, um, a to-do list, simple to-do list thing could be different for architects and it could be for, 
uh, accountants. You know, I don't know. I'm just making stuff up here off the off the cuff. It's probably these are probably bad ideas. But the point is, is that you can get attached to an industry and do something really well and really simple for that niche. I'm a big believer in little niche products, uh, things that are often overlooked. So yeah, a general purpose to do app. You know, look, there's a billion of them, right? But you know, if you are a, a repair person, like repairing, um, like for example, we have, um, we had to get our, our, our dryer our clothes dryer repaired recently. And, and they had like this custom piece of software that was used to track what was wrong with it and write up notes in it. And it's kind of a CRM kind of thing, but totally tailored to that specific industry. And I, I happened to see it cause the guy had his phone out and it looked like shit. And it was like confusing. The guy couldn't figure it out and it was slow. It's like, <laughs> there's an opportunity there to be really good at that. And you're probably not going to have a lot of competition necessarily. It might be hard to get those customers because you have to like reach out to, you know, who's repairing appliances at home. Maybe there's not enough of those people. But the point is, is that you can slice and dice this in a variety of different ways. But to be like a general purpose, simple to-do list, probably not the right thing to get into these days. And just because you want to get into it doesn't mean it's the right time. And, And I think you need to pay attention to the market as well. But also it does have to do with your appetite too. So like I said at the beginning there, it's like, Maybe you can find, maybe you can make 5,000 people extremely happy in a very specific way by speaking a very specific language to them, promoting the product with a, in a very different way. So it's not even just about the functionality. It's about how you tell the story. It's about the words you use and the emotion you can connect with. If your examples are like, you know, shopping lists, you know, milk, paper towels, oranges, it's like that, that there's no, no one, you can do that a million different ways. But if you talk about it in a different way, perhaps you can connect with people in a way that your competitors are not connecting. Uh, that might be a way to do it. So I don't know. Those are just, you know, I'm just sort of talking off the cuff, but those are some things I would think about. Yeah, those are good ideas. And I think it kind of goes back to uh, what we were talking about earlier, focusing. If you are trying to build like a thousand different things for your to-do list app, you're probably not going to think about your example screenshot and what kind of tasks go in it because you have too many other things to do. So you're just going to put like a shopping list on there. But if you're keeping it simple and you're really just like optimizing every part of it to be as good as it can be, then I think you have more bandwidth to do some of the things that you're suggesting and figure out how to apply it to a particular niche and like what kinds of tasks that might speak to them, et cetera. So just one more, one more reason to focus and do actually a, a deep, good job at what you're doing rather than just sort of skipping along the surface and being shallow. I think so. I'm looking at your homepage right now, and at the very bottom of it, you've got a chart, a little graph that shows the number of accounts that have signed up for Basecamp over the years. And 2004, it says 45. And then just two years later, 2006, it says 100,974. That's crazy. How did you get so many people to sign up for Basecamp (laughs) in the first couple of years? Well, I mean, part of it's timing, right? A big part of it's luck. And another part of it is that Basecamp is a collaborative tool. Therefore, you probably don't use it by yourself. You probably invite other people. And those people probably work somewhere else. Or they work with you, of course. But then they leave and they go get another job and they bring Basecamp with them. Or you invite a client. Basecamp is like the best way still to work with clients and keep everything in one place. And you can decide what client can see and what they can't see. And your team can work there and your client can work there and everyone's together. But then the client is exposed to Basecamp and then they're like, shit, I could use this for my own products and my, or my own projects internally. So they sign up. So it kind of spreads virally in that way. I also think it's a matter of timing. And also we built up an audience prior to releasing Basecamp. We were, um, we've been blogging since 99 and sharing and writing. And so we had, a, we had a large audience and kind of a fan base that we were able to release Basecamp to. 
our, our audience was primarily like us, which were web designers at the time and design firms and that sort of thing. And so every single one of them could use Basecamp. Like it was built for them because it was built for us and they are us and we are them. And so therefore, like it was a bullseye in terms of the audience. And so it spread that way. And it was new and novel and interesting and, and very simple and straightforward. And, and I think we did a really nice job explaining it and all those things together. And I, again, like I said, a big dose of luck and for timing is fortuitous and all this stuff happened and it kind of took off quickly. And, you know, I think it was a product of its time though, too. Like I said, like I, I, if we launched it today from scratch, came out of nowhere with a new thing called Basecamp that does what it does, uh, I think it would do well, but I don't think it would do as well as it did in the early days as quickly just because there's more options on the market and there's more things going on and people are, are a little bit different today than they were then. So there's partly that. But, you know, uh, we didn't advertise and we still don't. It just kind of took off. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is you just don't know how things happen. I mean, like, sometimes we all want to make sense of this, of the world and like, go, oh, we did it. This happened because of this, this and the other thing. We invested heavily in marketing. It's like, I don't know. I don't know why all this stuff worked. We just did our best, put it out there. People liked it. They shared it. I mean, we know that like it led to referrals and all that stuff. We can tell. But we didn't have a grand plan to to grow fast or grow slow. We just put it out there and see what happened. And uh, it took off. Well, it's continued to take off. I mean, your graph yeah. continues to go up and to the right. You're at over 3 million accounts signed up in 2019. But like we were talking about earlier, you've also released other products at 37signals. And not all of them did as well as Basecamp. In fact, I think Basecamp was by far like the outlier. It's kind of cool that you've been in this position where you've had... You've run almost kind of a controlled experiment. You know, you've had the same team, but you've worked on a bunch of different products, different ideas, different timing, different market. What are some of the things you learn when you look at the differences between why some of these products that you've launched have found more success than others? I'll continue from the last answer, which was part of it is I don't know. Truthfully, I have some theories. So backpack was the second thing we well, actually, Rightboard was the second thing we did, I think. But backpack. That was a free thing. Backpack was a pay product. And that was a consumer-focused product. So it was like five bucks a month or nine bucks a month. It was like a personal version of Basecamp in a sense. Uh, it's funny, there's a bunch of products coming out today that are just like Backpack was in 2005, which is like keep to-dos on one page and uh, along with notes and files and photos and all these like single-page organizational things, which is really good for personal use, but terrible actually for teams things get out of things grow really quickly really fast and then it's very difficult to manage everything on a single page but backpack was really good at that um but it was it was um and it it took off and did well for a while but in terms of revenue since it was a five dollar a month or nine dollar a month product it's just hard to sustain a, a business on five dollars a month and people are very price sensitive at that end as well and so what i remember we raised prices by like a dollar once or something and, and there was outrage like outrage. so <laughs> It's just what happens at the low and I get it, you know, and especially today, like today people expect things to be like 99 cents or free or whatever. So that one, the idea was fantastic. And as you're seeing, like now the idea is, is, is spreading again, but, um, as a business, it wasn't a good, it didn't, didn't have a good business model. So that happened. Then we released campfire in 2006, which was the first, uh, well, I shouldn't say the first, but like the prototypical group chat product. And, uh, that did never did anywhere nearly as well as even backpack because it was, I think way ahead of its time, obviously like Slack and these other products have, have clearly nailed that category. But in 2006, like people didn't really know what to do with that. They weren't really ready for that. People weren't prepared for that. 
and we didn't do a good job, you know, marketing it perhaps as well, but that never really took off, but we, we eventually built that into Basecamp 3. So, so Campfire is built into Basecamp 3. So there's chat and Basecamp and instant messaging as well. Um, so that product kind of folded into Basecamp. Um, High Rise was our, is our, basically our second biggest hit ever. And it's very, it was a huge hit and still is, all things considered. That was, I think, a big hit because like Basecamp, it was tailored towards businesses, so priced accordingly, and also had a very clear purpose. Campfire, this idea of like real-time chat and companies chatting and stuff like it, it was sort of a missed, there was no real direction there in terms of like, what do I use this for? Backpack was very personal. So that kind of was a easier thing to think through, but people didn't really want to pay for personal stuff. But high rise was CRM, which is basically customer relationship management, which is not really what we ever called it. The example was, it was built for us. So we we were starting to talk to more people in the press and our lawyers and accountants and other people and, and, and whatever and partnerships and stuff. And we were having all these conversations. We couldn't keep track of who we were talking to and who said what, when, and who to follow up with next and all that stuff. Just couldn't figure it all out. And so, you know, it's stuck in emails or stuck in this sheet or in that sheet or wherever you have all this stuff. And it's like, if I went out of town, David had no idea what was going on. If he needed to talk to the lawyer, well, he didn't know what I said to the lawyer. So just stuff was everywhere. And this remains a big problem for a lot of people. But Highrise was designed to, to make it really easy to keep track of who you talk to, what they said, what you said, and what to do next. And it's a very clear problem. And it's a problem a lot of salespeople have. It's a problem a lot of business owners have. It's a, lot of, a problem a lot of biz dev people have and people who are doing partnership deals and that sort of thing. So sole proprietorships who are wearing a lot of hats and talking to a lot of people. So it resonated and it was priced accordingly and it's done very, very well. I mean, it's a multi-million dollar profitable business and has been great, but it, it never, nothing ever hit like Basecamp hit. And part of this is like, the reason we've done three major versions of Basecamp, we're about to start our, our next soon, is that I'm perfectly comfortable calling ourselves a one-hit wonder at this moment. Now, I think this next thing we're going to be doing, or we're doing now, could be another big hit like Basecamp, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I don't think there's anything wrong with saying like, we hit it big once and we're doubling down and tripling down and quadrupling down on it. Because I think it's, you're lucky to have any hit in your life. And if you get one, like, some people think, well, I can keep getting more and more and more. And we're like, well, we've tried a bunch of things and nothing's quite hit like Basecamp. So we'll still try some stuff. But let's keep focusing on Basecamp and making that better and better and better and better because clearly we've done, we've built something that resonates and continues to resonate and resonates stronger and stronger. So that's sort of the, been the process for us. Uh, but again, I don't, these are all theories. I don't know exactly why something worked and didn't. But looking back on it now with the experience that we have, sort of some evidence that we have that those are kind of the reasons why I think some of these things hit and didn't. And then also, like we, like I said, we've done other things. We built a job board, which became something called We Work Remotely, which we then sold to another company, uh, I think it was two years ago. That was a huge hit. That was one of the most profitable things we've ever done. We built, it was a job board. We built it in three days and it ultimately did $40,000 a month in revenue. Wow. Probably the most profitable successful thing we've ever done based on the amount of hours put into it. No question. But at some point we just decided we don't want to run a job board anymore. So we, we ended up selling it. So we've done other things that have been big hits, but like they didn't hold our interest, you know? And I think that's another big part of this is that we're not just here. And this is maybe coming back to one of the earlier questions you had, like someone saying like, you, you shouldn't do this, which is it, it's ridiculous to sell off or get like essentially give up on something that is so profitable. But for us, it just we came down to like, what do we want to spend our time on? What kind of problems are we excited about? We weren't really that excited about job boards. 
so we felt like it'd be better in someone else's hands. And so even though it was wildly successful in a sense, it just wasn't for us anymore. And so we, we passed it on. And I think that's, that's totally cool to do. A lot of what you're talking about just has to do with the uncertainty of business, the uncertainty of learning things in a complex world with a lot of moving parts and variables. Uh, and you talk about this in your book, Rework, a little bit, how the conventional wisdom is that failure is good. You learn from failure. But I'm kind of of the same opinion that you are, which is that, well, there's millions of ways to fail at something. And so who are you to say that the lessons you learn from a particular failure are even the right lessons or even going to lead you to the path of success? Whereas if you do something that works, even if you don't fully understand the mechanisms behind why it works, you can still be pretty sure that it works and you can repeat it and you can build on top of it, which makes me think about what you were talking about, this base camp being sort of a one-hit wonder. Now that you're going into launching a totally new product, how do you think about what you're going to do to basically follow strategies that might work or avoid pitfalls that you might have fallen into in the past, et cetera, given all this uncertainty? One of the things that, that I think worked really well for us, we launched Basecamp originally, was that in the months leading up to it, we teased it not in a abstract way, but in a very, very concrete way, where we took one major feature at a time and wrote at length like why we built it the way we built it. So you didn't really know what the whole product was going to be as we were showing it off, but we got to see individual features and you could eventually piece it together. And I think it, it caught a lot of people's eyes because we were able to go deep, again, getting, getting back to the deep thing, go deep on a problem and really explain it in a way where people go, yes, that's my problem too. And these guys clearly understand what it's like to have this problem. Therefore, I trust their solution. So I think that in the months leading up to the release of this thing, we will probably begin talking about the reasons why we're building this thing. Maybe one feature or one problem at a time or however you want to put it uh, and go really deep on it. And I think that that's something we'll, we'll repeat. We've talked a lot about pricing and, and we're actually probably going to change the way we price this compared to other things we've done in the past. So that's sort of a new thing that we're not really taking any lessons with us necessarily from, from base camp success into this. We're going to see how, the, how this other idea goes, or this other pricing model goes. But I think ultimately people, connecting with people on um, their level, being very clear about why we're doing what we're doing, how we're doing what we're doing, how we've approached it, and what our, you know, our conclusions have been about these problems, and speaking to them that way versus speaking in a very marketing speaky way or a very you know, abstract you know, end-to-end solution kind of way where people just don't have any idea what you're talking about. Like We're going to be very specific. And I think these problems are going to be problems people can relate to problems that they don't even necessarily realize they have. But once they see them put this way, they'll go, I absolutely have that problem. I just didn't know it was a problem. But man, you're right. It is a problem. Totally is a problem. I've just taken it for granted. I've just hacked my way through these problems and put up with them. But shit, if I don't have to put up with this anymore, now that I know there's another way, like I'm interested in that. So that's kind of how we're hopefully going to be explaining this this thing that we're making. And then um, another thing I think we learned early on was that it's probably a good idea to sort of... um, slowly uh, launch things to build some, you know, some um, scarcity into the launch model a little bit and also kind of fix some things as you go, maybe for the first month or two prior to releasing it to everybody. Um, we did that with, uh, with, I mean, a lot of people do that now, but we did that early on with Backpack. That was the first thing where we, we did, we call this golden ticket thing where you could sort of apply to, you know, a lot of people are doing that now, but I think we'll go back to that. Um, that was, that was really handy on a number of levels. And, um, I think one other thing I would say is that we want to be very compatible with the outside world at large. 
So uh, one of the real su- like secret successes of Basecamp is how well it's integrated into email. But it's not even like integrated in an integration sense. It just works with email. So uh, you invite someone to a Basecamp project. They're like, I don't want to fucking use this thing. It's like, you don't have to. Just reply to the emails you get, and it goes straight into Basecamp. You don't even need to log in or set up an account ever. So you can reply to things, you can write things, and all that stuff can go through Basecamp or go through email and lands right in Basecamp where everyone else can see it. So working with email is a very important thing to us, all all in. Um, It's the widest common denominator. Pretty much everybody who has a job has email, and people who don't have jobs have email. It's just a great universal way to get in touch with people. So making sure that whatever we're building works with standard email protocols is really important to us. It's been, a, I think, a huge part of Basecamp's success. And I'm still, frankly, shocked that more products don't work well with email. Uh, I think people are making a grave mistake by thinking email is dead. It is not dead. It's alive and well, uh, and I think only getting stronger and stronger. So, it's not going anyway, anywhere. That's, yeah, it's not going anywhere, nor should it. It's fantastic. Like, email is amazing. And it has a lot of advantages over real-time communication. Email is a lot more asynchronous and has loads of advantages. And I think people are beginning to realize that again now that people have sort of gone overboard in real-time and they're realizing, shit, this is like an open office space. It's like, I thought this was a good idea, but I don't know now. I'm like constantly being bombarded by notifications. I'm being forced to focus on a dozen real-time conversations all day long. I have one eye on this chat thing all day long. It's like, there's, it's like what what am I doing with my time? How have I, how have I become... Like, why is work now a ticker tape? Like, why is why is work now a 24-hour news station? Like, this is not healthy, nor is it good. So I think people are beginning to shift back or will begin to shift back towards slowing things down a little bit. And I think email fits in very nicely there. You mentioned earlier that you're the worst person to ask for advice for starting new things because you've been running Basecamp for 20 years. But here you are, Jason, starting a totally new thing. And you've been working on it for some months now. So I don't know if it's true that you're the worst person to ask for advice here. <laughs> I'm the worst person to, to ask about starting a new business from scratch, let's say, mm. but not, not launching a new product. I, I do that frequently enough to have some hopefully useful advice. But I talked to a lot of founders who are early stage. They're launching new businesses, which are also new products. And the, the two problems that come up the most, number one is growth. They don't know how to grow. They don't know how to get their first users. They don't know how to get their customers. Uh, it's very hard for them to go to zero to one. And number two is... Uh, what I would describe is just an overall feeling of, of I'm doing it wrong. How do I know that I'm making the best decisions as a founder? I want to ask you about both of these things. Let's start with number two. When you first launched Basecamp, it was a very different world. Today, there are many hundreds of books written about how to validate your product idea and how to build a successful business from scratch. There's tons of blog posts. There's just so much information out there, so many case studies, so many people have shared their stories and things that they've learned. Back when you launched Basecamp, that didn't exist how much of this are you ingesting as someone who's launching new products versus how much are you learning from sort of the things you listed earlier, your own experiences? I don't pay much attention to industry news at all or read a whole lot of blogs about anything, actually. I find that there's so much information out there that it's all contradictory. You just don't, wouldn't know what to do with it. I think you're better off closing your eyes, shutting your ears, going to an island and doing your own thing, essentially. Like the best way to validate your product is to put a price on it and release it to the market and see if people are willing to pay for it. Like that's the best way. I, I don't think that there's any other way. Uh, I don't think asking people what they would pay for something like what price would, would you pay? Would you buy this if it was 49 versus 29? Whatever they tell you doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is when it's available, what will they pay for it? Like, will they actually buy it or not? 
I don't think you can ask people if things are good or not. I don't think throwing something out there for free for a long, long time, then trying to change or charge for it is, is, is valuable. These are, again, these are just my opinions, uh, my points of view, uh, and other people have had different experiences. But I think the best thing to do is just to heads down, do what you think is the best thing, something that you believe in, something that you can stand behind, something that you're doing because you understand why you're doing it versus doing it because you read it on a blog post. You don't totally understand it, but it sounded good. So like, that's what we're going to do. I think you just have to make sure that you that all the way down to the bottom that there's support, there's foundation that you've poured, that you understand, and then you know go go for it. Because look, I don't think anyone knows what the hell they're doing. Frankly, really, truly, me, me included, all of us included, we don't know what we're doing. We just do something, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And certainly, some people have maybe better judgment than others, and some people have more experience than others. But everybody is making it up as they go. Uh, the rules are always changing. The context is always different. Who knows? Who really knows? And who's to say that that person who wrote that blog post knows anything more than you know? There's very little evidence that they do in most cases. Like, eh, I'm the founder of this and we've done that. Yeah, whatever. Who really knows what that means? And just because you haven't done that doesn't mean you don't know anything more than they do or that you know more. You don't really know. So I think one of the most liberating things is to, is to, is to look out there at the world and go, hey, nobody knows what they're doing, really. And uh, the other thing is that most companies are held together with duct tape, that very, very few things are what they seem in terms of like how smooth and elegant and everything things are like, I wish we were like them. Like, maybe you don't wish you were like them if you really knew what it was like, what, what being them was like, you know, that sort of thing. So that's to me the most freeing thought, which is like, eh, who knows anyway, nobody really knows. Everyone's making up as they go. And you should too. Uh, it's not to say that you should be ignorant, although I do think there's a lot of value in it, to be honest. But I think you should be aware, but I don't think you should be so deeply steeped that it gets all the way, that everyone else's advice goes all the way to your core. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know, this is a weird analogy probably, but you look at good barbecue and there's like a smoke ring around like just the outside of the, whatever you're barbecuing. The smoke doesn't go all, the smoke doesn't go all the way to the center of the meat. It's just on the outside. Like, that's good. That's enough. Like that's enough versus like the thought is sometimes people steep themselves in so much information. They want it to like go all permeate all the way through their body. And, and I finally understand now that I'm filled up with information. <laughs> now, I think it's good to have a little bit of surface information, have a little sense and be, you know, be kissed by some of that. But ultimately you've got to figure out like at the, at the core of you, what, what you want to do and how you want to do it and be true to yourself. Otherwise, like it's, you don't know where to go after the first step or two when, when someone else is just going to say, well, I only knew the first step or two. Yeah, that's all the advice I have. And now you're like, well, what do I do next? Like, I don't know. So no one really knows anyway. That's why you got to figure, you got to lean on yourself. That's my take at least. I feel that way when people ask me for advice about various things that I do at Indie Hackers. Like, oh, how do you prepare for a podcast episode? How do you pitch a guest to come on? How do you do your interviews on the website? I'm just like, I probably did all the wrong things. And I would love to know how you do it <laughs> so I can improve <laughs> how I'm doing it. But it's it's so easy just to... Uh, I don't know, to take like the veneer of success and over, over apply that and assume that people know everything that's going on. Um, yeah. Yeah. And also like even your point, and we all do it. I've said it to you. like, I don't know, I'm probably doing it wrong. Like everyone always says that, like I'm doing it wrong. It's like, well, if it's working for you, it's not wrong. And what does working for you mean? Well, do you enjoy doing it? Do you feel satisfied doing it? Are you happy doing it? Do you feel rested? Do you feel like you could do this this way for 10 years? Like, those are the kinds of questions, not like, how do I measure up to, you know, like, am I doing it wrong? Does that mean like I'm leaving money on the table? Well, I, I, certainly, probably like, so what? Like we leave lots of money on the table. That doesn't mean we're doing it wrong. 
it means that we're doing it right if we enjoy doing it, if, if it's sustainable, if it's the kind of stuff we want to do more of. Like that's what doing it right means. So however you prepare for a podcast, like if you, you've been doing this you, you for a while, you enjoy doing this, clearly you, I think you're very good at this. Like your questions are really insightful and you're, you're really good on mic. Like you're doing it right. Like could you be doing it better? I don't know. What does that even mean? If it's better like for the results but worse for you, then probably not better. Uh, so I think we should all just kind of figure out our own way that works for us. And that's the right way for us. Right. Is, is relative. It's, it's not, it's not, uh, absolute. You're probably onto something with this, not reading blogs thing, because I think maybe just a side effect of, of reading so much, like so much information that's coming out from so many people and a lot of it good that you, you sort of have this underlying feeling of like, I'm doing it wrong <laughs> when you see such a vast world of other ways to do it. And maybe the, the best way to get rid of that feeling is to just shut some other things out and just do what you're saying. Be, be happy with your own results and look at yourself. Yeah, we have a thing in, in our latest book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. Uh, we have an essay called um, JOMO, which is basically the joy of missing out. I think missing out is great. I have no interest in being on top of everything especially news, especially industry news, especially industry trends. I mean, this is one of the reasons why almost everything looks the same. It's because everyone's following each other. It's, I think, like to me, what's sort of interesting is like the Galapagos Islands are way more interesting than the Hawaiian Islands. You know, the Galapagos Islands, like everything evolved on its own there. Uh, that's really interesting. Uh, and, and the solutions are different and very interesting and very contextual to that particular environment. That's cool. And I think more companies would be better off if they just sort of worried about their own environment and their own customers and themselves versus like, how, how do they do it? And how am I supposed to do it? Because I read this, they do it this way. It's again, it's not about not being influenced at all, but I think it, it, there's something bad about being overly influenced. Again, if you just don't know the reasons why you're doing something, but you've just sort of heard it over and over and over and you keep doing it, I think you have a really hard time falling back on any fundamentals if, if you don't have them and there's someone else's. So I think it's important to build your own and just do it your own way. Yeah, I think the same thing about Japan. It's uh, it's just yes. a weird place. So many weird things, like bizarre stuff coming out of Japan that you don't see anywhere else. It's almost like an alien civilization. And it, like every time I see it, it just reminds me of how how much everybody else is just copying each other and how much more diversity and variation there could be in media and ideas and, and products and uh, culture. But there, there isn't because people just sort of, we just copy. I'm glad you brought that up. That was... Um, I've only been to Japan once, but that was sort of my takeaway as well, aside from it being an amazing place for a number of reasons. But it was the first place I'd ever been in, in a first world country where it was distinctly different. Like I've been to Europe, many countries in Europe, and yeah, it's different than the US in a number of ways, but somehow it feels like still there's a line between the two cultures. But Japan just feels different. It feels totally different. It was refreshing because you kind of feel like, well, the world is sort of kind of one way. And I know I'm being totally overgeneralizing here. There's a million things to see in the world that I haven't seen and whatever. But people who've been to Japan probably feel this way too. It's like, there's just something different about that place. And they sort of evolved on their own pace, at their own scale, their own way. Um, and they're, they have different cultural values. Uh, and they're represented in all these different ways. And you realize like, wow, this is this is a very I mean, they have plenty of downsides too. They've got all sorts of issues around workaholism and uh, women typically don't have the same opportunities as men. And like, there's a whole bunch of other issues there, clearly the big alcoholism issues and whatnot. But like, 
there's a number of things that are so distinctly different that you're almost like, I can't, I couldn't imagine a different way to do this, but wow, they've imagined a different way to do this. And guess what? It works really, really, really well. It's refreshing. So I think it's important to see that there are different ways of doing things. And of course, their context is different too. They have a society that's pretty homogenous. They don't really allow outsiders in, which is another issue, perhaps. I mean, maybe it's not an issue for them, but from like our point of view, it would seem perhaps to be not as appealing. But you know, these are different cultures and they do things different ways. And it's just very interesting to see. And so I think that that is a valuable experience. I'm kind of glad that they they have this isolation thing going on because it's like you said, like there's lots of different things that we couldn't even imagine going a certain way. And maybe you need someone to be isolated and someone to sort of follow their own path without taking inspiration from the outside uh, for them to imagine these things that we can't imagine. And, and hopefully more companies will, will operate that way as well in the future. I agree. Like for, for one example, like I was, in, I was in, I think it was Kyoto, and there was a tree branch. And the tree branch was going over the street, and it was an old tree. They actually put a crutch underneath the branch to hold it up, and the crutch went down into the middle of the street. And in the U.S., they'd cut that branch right off. They'd be like, that, that you can't put something in the middle of the street. But in Japanese cultures, like nature was more important. That that tree's been here longer than than this street has been. And like, there's there's a there's there's a value in this tree, and this should be here. And we'll just walk around it, or we'll go around it with our cars or our bikes, and it'll be fine, and everything will be fine. But it's more important that we respect this amazing living thing, and. In the U.S., you would just never see that. It just it, never. It would be like an outrage, you know, and to take like a, a little bit of space up in the street with something like. There's already outrage in many cities around bike lanes. That bike bike lanes are taking up too much room. There's less parking. It's like, <laughs> whoa, you know. And and so like to to care about a tree, a tree's welfare, you know, over over us, the people, the the, the chosen ones, you know, it's that kind of thing. That's like, wow, that just comes from an entirely different place, and. We have trees here. We have streets here, <laughs> you know. Like, but there's no way we would treat them the same way. And I just thought that was that was so emblematic of of a culture that develops and has uh, differently and has different values. I hope more companies. And you know, unfortunately, I think that you know, the, the U.S.'s worst export to me is like the Silicon Valley style company, and that's that's making its way around the world right now. And and I think it's a terrible export. And I think there's a lot of even, I mean, not just externally, but internally, there's a lot of companies that are just trying to run that way. And everyone's trying to sort of be the same way. And they have the same tool sets and they work the same way. And I, I think it's unfortunate. There's, there's a, there's a diversity is, you know, we talk a lot about diversity, right? And there's should be diversity in companies as well. Not just the people in the companies, of course, but the companies themselves should work differently, should act differently, should try to be themselves. And I think we'll have a, a much healthier overall business ecosystem when companies are diverse too. It's this weird intersection where I think as a founder, like I was saying, the number two problem that people tell me they have is just this, this soul-crushing uncertainty. Am I doing the right things? And that leads them to copying what others are doing because there's some comfort in that. Peter Levels did it this way. Jason Fried did it that way. Maybe I should do the same. Then at least I'm no worse than those guys. But I think it also creates a huge opportunity for people who are willing to sort of branch out and think their own thoughts because we were talking about sort of differentiating when you make a simple product. Well, if you're creative, right, if you sort of go into a hole, you live on an island and you, and you build what you think is right, there's a really good chance it's not going to look like what other people have done. And, and that gives you kind of an edge in the market. So yeah, I really hope that people take that message to heart. And honestly, just having this conversation makes me want to build something new just to see how different and unique I can make it and sort of question some of the conventions that have been around for such a long time. 
Yeah. And don't show anybody. Like this is the other thing. I think people are showing things to people too frequently during the building process. And I know that like there's, you want to see if you're on the right track and all that stuff, but I think there's a real advantage just being quiet and going away and doing your thing and then dropping it on the world and going, here's the thing. I don't know. I, I think there's something to that. And I'd love to see more people do that. I think there's, there's another thing that I've been noticing is that I feel like far too many people are looking for mentors. Uh, like they're, they're looking for that one person who's going to tell them what to do, teach them how to do it. You know, it's like that one person doesn't have any idea what to do. <laughs> okay. They have an opinion just like you do. Yeah. Maybe their opinion is a little bit more experienced, but only it's, it's only experienced in the context in which it was developed. It's not experienced in your situation at your time right now. So I, I would put just less and less weight and value in other people's point of view, to be honest, and, and just figure out your own way and go and like, don't spend any energy worrying if you've got it figured out or if you're doing the wrong thing, because the chances are equal, I think on both sides, whether or not you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing, because they're, who knows, who really knows just like to hear that that's the second thing that people bring up to you, like the second most crushing thing. It's unfortunate to me because like, it doesn't, it's, 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 that's a self-induced sort of concern. It's not like a real thing, actually. A real thing would be like, and I get this, like, I don't know how to get the product to market. That's like a real thing. That's a hard thing that almost every company goes through. Like, that's a legitimate thing that we can talk about. But this idea that, like, I don't know if I'm doing it right or wrong or whatever, like, there is no right or wrong. The only thing that tells you if it's right or wrong is the market itself, which comes back to that first point, which is like, how do you get the thing on the market so people can even see it and have a chance to play with it and have a chance to evaluate it and pay for it? That's the only thing that really tells you whether or not it's good or not. Well, listen, I would love to, to keep talking for hours. I've kept you for an hour. 15 let's do another time. Yeah, yeah, we'll do another one. Let's do another one. I'd love to have you on. Uh, let me leave you with, with one more question. Most people listening to this are early stage founders or people who soon will be early stage founders. What are some habits that you think they should develop from the start to help them build a more successful and more enjoyable company later on? Get at least eight hours of sleep every night. Work about eight hour days and figure out how to reduce the distractions in your day. These are habits that are really important to form now because you don't intentionally form habits. You form habits by doing something over and over and over and over. And so if you're starting out now, and you're working, you know, 15 hour days, and you're getting six hours or five hours of sleep a night, and whatever, you're going to keep doing it that way. And at some point, it's not going to work for you anymore. It's going to exhaust you and burn you out. And it's unfortunate, because that means you're gonna have to stop doing what you're doing. You're no longer in control of, of the things that you wanted to do. So I would say just form really good, like, work hygiene, essentially, you know, Good sleep, good rest, plenty of time away from work. Don't work on the weekends. Eight hours is plenty of time to do great work and begin to develop those habits because those are the things that are going to pay off over time. And they also force constraints on you, which are really valuable things also to get used to. And they force you to be more creative and they force you, I think, to, uh, to have a sharper knife in terms of the cuts you make and the edits you, you make. I think that that's really an important quality and a, an important skill to focus on. So those are the things you know, again, like everything else I was saying, like, just pay more attention to your own gut than anyone else's. Um, not that your gut's better. It's just that it's yours and you're going to have to rely on it your whole life anyway, no matter what you read and who's available and whatever, like you have to rely on yourself, uh, as a founder to make decisions. So get used to relying on yourself and practice that as much as you can as well. So if you're listening to this, 
and you're a founder and it's 2 a.m., go to sleep, turn it off. <laughs> Please. I mean, I would also recommend reading really quick Why We Sleep, which is an incredibly important book. I would say one of the most important books you'll ever read in your life. Why We Sleep, it's called, from um, Matthew, uh, gosh, I forgot his last name right now. But you'll you'll find it uh, online. Just look up Why We Sleep. I'm embarrassed I totally forgot his last name. Sleep is so important, especially for creative minds and for creators uh, and for anybody who has to make decisions. It's like the best, like everyone's looking for hacks and, you know, whatever. it's like there's no hack, just sleep well, just sleep well and you'll perform better flat out, period. So anyway, read it and you'll probably live longer. Uh, read it and it's a, it's a great book to check out. I just one click ordered it on Amazon while we sleep by Matthew Walker, PhD. Walker, that's it. Yes. Jason, thanks so much for the recommendations. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I'll have to have you on again. Uh, Have a great day. I'd love to. Thanks again for having me on. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.